Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. My guest today is Maria Konnikova. She's a graduate of Harvard, earned her PhD in psychology in Columbia University, and is a regular contributing writer for The New Yorker magazine. But the principal reason she joins us today is because she mastered the fiercely competitive game of Texas Hold'em poker in a matter of months, became an international poker champion herself, and won over $300,000 in tournament earnings. So just let's level set where we are so far. You may be scratching your head and wondering, what does poker playing and leadership have in common? Well, as you're about to hear, the answer is not only quite a lot, but also that without having undertaken her extraordinary journey, Maria may never have acquired the many uncommon lessons about human behavior that we're about to discuss. So before I introduce her, you should know that Maria had never played poker before and didn't even know the rules of the game before she approached Eric Seidel, Poker Hall of Fame inductee and winner of tens of millions of dollars in earnings and persuaded him to be her mentor. And under Seidel's tutelage, Maria learned to better read not just her opponents, but far more importantly, herself. She learned how to identify what tilted her into an emotional state that got in the way of making good decisions and how to get to a place where she could accept luck for what it was and for what it wasn't. What makes this story so compelling, of course, is that she started winning tournaments and effectively became a professional player in less than a year. So this inherently means that Eric Seidel had himself an especially smart and talented person to coach. All in all, Maria committed two whole years to her poker playing career and documented her entire experience in her New York Times bestseller, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And what she shares are profound insights on what can be controlled and what cannot be in all aspects of life. Bad cards will inevitably come our way, but our triumphs result when we focus on how we play them, not on the outcomes. Following a year of pandemic-driven lockdown, you need no reminder of how certain the world is in which we all live today. And going forward, knowing how to master that ambiguity is going to be an especially valuable skill. And with that, let me extend to you a very warm welcome to the podcast, Maria Konnikova. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. And let's start at the beginning of your journey. I want to know, what were the driving forces behind your decision to devote a year of your life to mastering poker? And that's the big question, right? So were you particularly interested in poker or were there other disciplines that you considered before you committed to this one? I was not interested in poker at all. And the poker was never actually the point. I had wanted to write a book about luck and about the role that luck plays in our lives and about how we can learn to tell the difference between skill and chance, between what we control and what we don't. How do you learn to maximize your own abilities and how do you learn to deal with the chance that life is going to throw at you no matter what? And when I decided that that was going to be my next book, you know, that's not a book. It's just kind of a bunch of questions and inquiry, if you will. And so I needed a way in. I needed a story. And whenever I'm starting any new project, I just read a lot. That's always my process. So you know, for every one page I write, I've probably read hundreds of pages. And one of the things that I was reading was the theory of games and economic behavior. 
I did understand most of it. It's a very complex book. But what I did learn was that one of its authors, John von Neumann, was a poker player. And that game theory, which is one of the greatest economic theories of the 20th century, that it was born out of poker. So von Neumann was one of the great polymaths of the 20th century. He didn't just come up with game theory. He's also the father of the computer, one of the creators of the hydrogen bomb. So brilliant man. And here was this brilliant man who thought that poker, this game, was the key to strategic decision-making in every walk of life. Now, he was advising the U.S. National Security Council at the time, and he thought that poker would help him. He thought that if he could solve this game, he'd basically be able to prevent nuclear war. Literally, I'm not actually making that up. Wow. He, he actually wrote that. And so it really intrigued me. And I thought, what in the world is this poker thing? You know, I'm not into games at all. Poker certainly have never been into it. When I was growing up, we didn't even have a deck of cards in the house. So not something that had ever crossed my radar. Never seen a poker game. Didn't really know what it was. The only poker game I'd ever seen actually was in the movie Rounders. So a fictionalized poker game. And I spent more time looking at, you know, Matt Damon and uh, Teddy KGB <laughs> than, than following the poker. And when I started reading about this poker thing, something just clicked. I thought, huh, what if I pick up von Neumann's challenge? Because poker, by the way, still isn't solved. And what if I actually try to learn it, try to learn this game, try to immerse myself in it for a year, get someone really good to teach me and see where I come up, you know, see what I can learn, see whether I can use poker as kind of this laboratory, this life laboratory as a metaphor for life to try to help me answer these big questions about the limits of skill and about this balance between skill and chance in life. And that was the start of the journey, which had nothing originally to do with the game as such. Well, okay. So I have like a million questions. When I was reading your book, I want to ask her this, and I want to ask her this. And obviously, I'm coming at it from a totally different optic than probably a lot of the people that were reading your book. But you've just said a whole bunch of stuff that I have got to probe into. The first one is, so now that you've solved poker, are we going to prevent nuclear war? <laughs> is that, is that I haven't solved poker. <laughs> poker is the uh, kind of the gold standard for AI researchers around the world. They wow. use No Limit Hold'em to try to test their algorithms. And it hasn't been solved. Full ring poker is not even close. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am a big believer in the power of data and the power of AI research. So I do think that eventually, they'll get it. But as of now, it's still this big question. Wow. And I think that one of the reasons why it's so difficult is that it's an infinitely complex game. Unlike chess, which has been solved, which is a game of perfect information, where you see everything, right? You see all the pieces, you see the entire board, and you see the universe of options. And theoretically, you know, with enough computing power, which we now have, you know what move to make, what move is going to be kind of the optimal move at any given point in time. But poker is a game of incomplete information. Mm. So, you know, imagine a chessboard where you don't see the entire board. Part of it is obscured and you don't see all the pieces and something that you thought was a rook ends up being a queen. And this isn't really a pawn, it's a knight because people can bluff and people can deceive you and things aren't what they seem. And it's not just a game of math. It's a game of people. It's a game of information advantage. It's a game of psychology. It's a game of nuance. And now multiply that by eight or nine, which is how many players sit 
at a poker table and you start to understand why this is so ridiculously complex because there are so many things to take into account, especially when you have live poker. You know, you have the nuances of facial expression and the dynamics of the table, the dynamics between people, all of these intangibles. And now you have to try to figure out a way to make them tangible, to actually input them into a model, to actually add them to the mathematics of pot odds and combinatorics and all of these other things that you're dealing with. And that's why it's so damn hard. Well, you've convinced me that it's a grander metaphor for life, the way you just described it. So I want to pin something else down. And it seems to me that by, you said that you read 100 pages for every one that you write, which is fascinating in itself, because I would think most people would think if you're going to be in the writing mode, you're going to be in the writing mode. You're not going to be straddling and you're not straddling. If you're reading 100 to 1, you're spending a lot more time reading than you are writing. I think that by virtue of just being exposed to a lot of different things that you were influenced to pursue what you did, right? In other words, by reading that one book, it intrigued you and that led you down the path of becoming a professional poker player. But what influenced you? What's the mindset that says, I'm going to read 100 pages for every one I write? Well, I mean, I think that we are just lifelong learners. And to me, you know, reading is absolutely essential to writing well. I mean, you can't be a good writer if you don't read. And even when I'm not writing a book, when I'm writing, you know, a magazine article or whatnot, I'll do hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading beforehand just to immerse myself mm -hmm. in it, to know what I'm talking about, to get a feel for the field, for what's been done, for kind of what the questions are, what the language sounds like. I think immersion in any area is incredibly important. And I think that especially these days, we tend to fall into this trap where, you know, you read one article or, you know, you hear one podcast and suddenly you think you know yeah, everything, you think you're an expert. <laughs> right. exactly. And that comes you, up a lot in your yeah, book, but yes. You think you're just ready to take on the world and you're not. <laughs> and so what I've learned is the truth is the more you know, the more there is to learn. And so in my mind, there's always more I can be reading and more I can be doing. That said, when I'm actually writing, so when The Biggest Bluff was being written, like when I stopped playing and kind of sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write this book. Now, a lot of it had been written before in the sense that I took notes every day. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of primary material. But when I was really just putting the book together and doing the that heavy lift, I did not read any nonfiction. The only thing I was reading was fiction and poetry. And that's always my process. So I never want any competing voices in my head when I'm writing nonfiction. So whenever I actually sit down to kind of bang out whatever project I'm working on, the reading stops. Got it. And it continues, but in other ways, because I don't want Michael Lewis's voice in my head. Yeah. As <laughs> that voice right. is right. when I'm writing. As good down. a voice as it is. So let's go back now. And one of my big questions was, so you've read this book, you start to thinking poker might be the, the route I want to take. What made you believe that you could go from a novice to pro in less than a year? Did you believe that? Do we, were you testing that? No, I did not believe that. Okay. No, no. It's funny. But at the beginning, I had no preconceptions about how the journey would go and how successful I was going to be. And it didn't matter. That was the beauty of this project. It was all about the journey. It was all about the process. Poker, as a metaphor for life, all of the things I learned 
it would have worked no matter what. And that was essential. I didn't want to go into this presupposing a certain outcome because you never know what's going to happen. And you never know. It's skill, but it's also luck. And I didn't know if I would have skill in this. I didn't know if I'd like it. I didn't know if I had any natural talent. I mean, there were so many different things that I just did not know. And so at the onset, even when I convinced this incredible player, Eric Seidel, the best poker players in the world, to take me on as a student. And we had this conversation very early on. He said, you know, well, we'll see, you know, we'll see how this works. And we have no idea if you're going to be good or not. He said, we have some reasons to believe you will be good, you know, based Mm -hmm. on your experience in psychology, based on kind of your knowledge of decision making, but we don't know. There's a big gap between knowing things and then actually being able to execute them and be a good poker player. And to be fair, I was really horrible for a long time. (laughs) Well, I mean, that came out. You were very honest about your progression. But I'm wondering if you thought, did you have an exit plan? Like, did you say, if this is really a bomb in the first 90 days, if I just can't grasp this, I'm not going to commit myself to spending any more time on it? Because would the book have been as interesting if you hadn't succeeded? So, no. I mean, yes and no in terms of the exit plan. I actually met Eric and started the first step of the research process before I sold the book because I thought it was really important to make sure that one, I did not hate poker. That was important. I didn't want to dedicate a year of my life to doing something I hated. And two, just to make sure that there was something there because as excited as I was from reading, from kind of all of the intellectual challenge of it, I needed to make sure that there was going to be a book there, that there was going to be a journey there. Mm -hmm. So I spent a few months, like the first chapter or two of the book, they weren't fully written before I sold the book, but those experiences had happened. And so I, in terms of exit plan, it was pre-selling the book because by the time I got around to writing the proposal and actually selling this as a book, I was pretty sure that it was going to work. I think that that's the way that you always have to do it, to be perfectly honest. I think that people underappreciate how much goes into a proposal for a nonfiction book and that oftentimes, you know, that's six months of your life and it might not work out, but you have to do it anyway. And there were actually a few books that I had thought I was going to write about luck before poker came along, which my agent just completely shot down. Good thing she did, because otherwise the biggest bluff would not have existed. Yeah, life has a way of working out. So you've mentioned something that I truly believe in, which is having a mentor or a coach. And you managed to get somebody who was like really extraordinary. So how did you convince Eric Seidel, one of the greatest poker players and winningest poker players of all time, to spend an hour with you. Moreover, be your coach through this whole thing. And what do you think motivated him on it? What was he getting in exchange for this? I think that whenever you ask something so big of someone, you know, to be a mentor, to be a coach, to spend time with you, you have to really approach it carefully and think about how can it be the most equal exchange possible? Not just what can I get from you, but what can I give to you? How can I actually make this experience, this interaction worthwhile for you? And so I spent weeks preparing for my meeting with Eric and trying to figure out, you know, what can I give this brilliant player? And I tried to think, what do I have that he doesn't have? And the answer to that was, you know, I have a PhD in psychology. I have this deep knowledge of human decision making on a completely different level in the sense that his knowledge is very deep, practical. It comes from poker. And mine is 
kind of imbued in the theories and kind of the experiments and the academic thinking from the last century. And so I spent time going through the literature and trying to put together anything that had been done about poker, about the types of decisions I thought people would make in poker. And I came to that first meeting with just printout after printout after printout to try to show him that I had something that I could give him as well and that I could work with him and, you know, try to kind of figure out from the psychological side, what can I give you? And I think that showed a few things. One, that I was going to try at least to give back. Two, that I was a hard worker and that I was taking this incredibly seriously. That's also important. I mean, I've had people ask me to be their mentor and then fail to show up for a coffee. That's not okay. That shows that you don't value my time, that you're not taking this seriously. I mean, that shows me everything I need to know about you. And that's a big no-no. So you have to kind of show the opposite, that you're going to show up, that you're going to put in the work, that you're going to work your ass off, and that his time is going to be well spent. I'm going to reiterate something here that you just said, you know, that this is a leadership podcast. And you said something, Maria, that is so insightful, which is when you are asking someone to do something for you, to find a way to make it equal. What can I give you as your language? And, you know, it's interesting. My podcast has become successful. Many people want to be guests. And almost none of the people who've ever approached me to say that I would like to be a guest position it as, here's why it would be good for you. Here's why it would be good for your audience. And when I've had to say no to people that have inquired because their work is just totally unrelated and the person that's asking is unfamiliar with the focus and what we're trying to achieve. And I just said, I'm sorry, but it's not a fit. No, thank you very much. I appreciate you're just considering it. Never hear from these people again. And I just was like, it's like, if you just approached it differently, you might be able to win me over. I've listened to your show. Here's what I think about it. This is a little bit off topic, but I can talk about this. I mean, I can make this really Mm -hmm. good. I go, okay, go on. You know, so I just think you've made a really great Great point. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think just to reiterate this a little bit, because I think it's true everywhere. I mean, you can't underestimate the importance of doing your homework and not being lazy about it, right? Not just doing kind of a half-assed job, but actually doing your homework. You also have, you have no idea how many times people have asked me things like, oh, can you introduce me to your editor at The New Yorker? And I ask, well, you know, why who are your, some of your favorite writers or where else have mm-hmm. you written for? And the answer is, oh, well, I don't really read it. And, you know, I, <laughs> and I've never really written for anything else, but I think this would be perfect. And my jaw just drops. I think, well, yeah, you I need understand. to, you don't even know kind of what you're asking and you don't have, no, you, you don't start there. You start, you start elsewhere and then eventually maybe it will work out. But being lazy is very easy and it's much more difficult, I think, to go above and beyond. But yes, yeah, so that was kind of the first the first part of my preparation. And of course, I'm going to keep reiterating this because I don't want to I don't want to undervalue it myself and I want to make sure that people know. I mean, I also got lucky. I made a good pitch, but I asked the right person. And some of that was the fact that I researched well. But a lot of it, I just didn't know. I had no idea that Eric was the type of person who reads The New Yorker and who actually knew who I was, that he's the type of person who's just curious about different areas of life. And that for him, poker is a passion and his 
livelihood, but that he also is curious about the world outside of poker and wants to spread the love of poker elsewhere. So I really ended up approaching the perfect person who understood what I was going to do and who was willing to look at it as a long-term commitment, that it wasn't just going to be, oh, this is a poker player asking me to coach her. That wasn't it at all. I didn't know how to play poker. He saw it as, oh, here is a popular writer, a journalist whose audience is not poker players. And she wants to learn this game so that she can write about it in a broader way, in a non-poker centric way. Maybe that's a way of bringing awareness of poker to a broader audience, of bringing more people to the game, of teaching more people what the game is about, if I can teach her well. Did you know anything about him? In other words, when you pitched him of all the people, there's a lot of other professional poker players you could Mm -hmm. have reached out to, right? So you said you did a little research or a lot of research. Did you have a sense going in that if he said yes, he was going to be the kind of mentor that you needed? No, I had no idea. He's intensely private. If you Google him, you will find nothing. I mean, now you'll find some stuff because we've done (laughs) some things together. And after The Biggest Bluff came out, a lot more about him kind of came out online. But before that, nothing. Just results of poker tournaments and videos of him playing. And that's it. He does not give interviews. He's someone who's all about the game and not about himself. So a lot of it was luck. I will say that one of the reasons he was my top choice was that I did watch a lot of poker videos. And he stood out in all of them because he seemed kind, good, and humble. Mm. And no one else checked those boxes. All the other big names, you see them and they're throwing a hissy fit or they're yelling at someone or they're doing this. They just did not seem like people that I would mesh with. And this is someone I was going to be spending a lot of time with. And he just seemed like he was quietly, like it was never about him. And yet he was quietly taking everyone's money and making better decisions than everyone else. And that really appealed to me. When you were at Columbia getting your doctorate, you did this experiment where you asked thousands of people to play a simulated stock market game. And you found that people consistently overestimated the amount of control they had on their outcomes. So for example, and this is from your book, obviously, they not only made investment buying decisions based on extremely limited information, but they then stuck to their guns even as they started to lose money. So we've been kind of talking about this Dunning-Kruger orientation. In other words, they chose to ignore all the signs that their decisions weren't working. And this idea that humans aren't always rational is one lesson you learned. But what are the other key conclusions you made about us people? And and how did this research influence how you'd go on to play poker and competitive poker? Well, I think that this particular study illustrated one very important element of rationality or lack thereof, which is this idea of the illusion of control. So thinking that we're in control when we're not, it's an incredibly powerful illusion. And the first demonstration was kind of crazy. And I was actually able to replicate this when I was a grad student. It was done in Harvard in the 70s by the psychologist named Ellen Langer. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she had students basically try to predict the outcome of a coin toss. So, I mean, we can agree that that's completely chance, right? You can't yes. actually predict yes. whether a coin is going to fall heads or tails. But she rigged it so that they would be told they were correct or wrong in a specific 
fashion. So it was always about 50-50 correct answers and wrong answers. But she would have the research assistant basically tell them, oh, yes, you're right, a lot at the beginning, a lot at the end, or just randomly, or the way that the human mind thinks that randomly looks. And then she asked them all sorts of questions like, I am good at predicting the outcome of a coin toss. With practice, I will become better. If I'm not distracted, I would have done better. And it turns out that Harvard students who got a lot of these quote unquote right early on fell for the illusion of control. And so when you ask them questions like that, they'd say things like, yeah, I'm actually pretty good at predicting the (laughs) outcomes of coin tosses. Yes, I would be better with practice. Yeah, if that guy just left the room and I could really focus, I would be really good. My record would be even better. It was just mind-blowing. These were really smart kids. And this was how they experienced something that's so objectively not skill. Right? They were giving these very skill-based answers. And I found the exact same thing when I replicated the study when I was a graduate student. And so it hasn't gone away. And the beauty of the coin toss is there are no two ways about this. It's not a skilled endeavor. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet. And so the illusion of control is this incredibly powerful thing. So now imagine you're in an environment like the stock market where it's no longer as crystal clear as a coin toss. And it turns out that when you put very smart people in situations like that, over and over, they will overstate the degree of control that they have. They'll be overconfident. They'll give themselves too much agency for things going well. And this happens to the smartest people, to the most experienced people, to people who were hedge fund portfolio managers, for God's sake. We put them in this situation and they would just completely fall for it. And so to me, it's a fascinating bias because not only is it irrational, but it actually applies more to smart people who are usually in control and usually very good at what they do. They just can't conceive of the fact that suddenly control has been ripped away from them. And so knowing that, It was such a powerful motivator to try to figure out, you know, how do I overcome this? Because it's something that, you know, most biases, as you get more experience, you know, as you become better at something, they they never go away, but you can master them more. But the illusion of control actually increases with knowledge and, and experience because you become so good that you forget that sometimes you ain't in control of things. Does ego play a role in that too? Yeah, I think so. I guess I'm trying to figure out, do we have this illusion of control all of us because that helps us survive? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's definitely a component to this. So what was your remedy for it while you were playing poker or in life in general? Well, in life in general, I didn't have a remedy for it because we psychologists are great at pointing out problems and not quite as good at figuring out how do you you actually fix that. So it wasn't until I um, started playing poker that I was forced to actually confront this head on because poker is just a beautiful teaching tool because you have to put your money where your mouth is. You are constantly getting feedback and you have money on the line. You have skin in the game. And if you fail to take feedback from the environment, if you fail to learn, if you fail to update your decision making, if you keep being the kind of player who, when things go well, says, yep, I'm a genius. I'm brilliant. I knew that was going to happen. And when things go poorly, say, oh, I can't believe that idiot. Why was he even in the hand? You know, it wasn't my fault. It was this, it was that. If you're that kind of player, you're going to go broke. 
you're actually going to lose all of your money eventually because you aren't learning. You are giving yourself too much agency over good outcomes and you are deflecting agency saying, oh, no, no, it wasn't my fault when things don't go well. And you are doing something that is kind of the cardinal sin of decision making, but something that we just do all the time in real life. You're conflating the decision process with the outcome. You're taking the outcome to equal the decision process, right? Good outcome. I did good. Bad outcome. I did bad. Wrong. That's absolutely not the case. You can have an amazing outcome, but you actually messed up and you just got lucky. And you can have a bad outcome, but you did everything right and you actually made the right decision. You just got unlucky. And if you have delusions about your own controllability and kind of the amount of agency you have, then you are going to once again go broke. And so poker just offers this very powerful corrective because you constantly have to ask yourself, did I think well? Did I make the right decision? What did I what did I think about as I made this decision? Should I make this decision again? Did I go wrong somewhere? Did I make a wrong turn? If so, how do I fix that? How do I do better next time? How do I put myself in a position to win over and over and over? How do I put myself on the right side of variance, even though I know that I can never guarantee success? Sort of massive curiosity is what you're describing, right? I mean, you're just (laughs) always asking, 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 right? This could border on the self-critical because if you're winning money, you'd say, well, okay, I am doing some things well here. But what you're willing to do, and I think this is true of a lot of professional athletes, they're constantly saying, you know, like a take a golfer, for example, they may be driving the ball well, hitting chips, shots well, but not putting well and saying, okay, if I can get better at putting, I can improve my score by, you know, a couple shots around, that kind of a thing, that kind of thinking as opposed to, well, I'm doing well in tournaments. I don't need to worry about any of it. So they're parsing it down to where are the elements that I can get better at. And it sounds like you carried the Ellen Langer experience into your poker experience, which gave you a major leg up, I would think. I think so. I mean, I think that the fact that I came at it from a totally different angle and that I had this psychology background, I do think that it helped me ramp up more quickly because I was much more self-aware and had kind of this metacognitive knowledge of a lot of what was happening to me, what was happening to other people. Mm -hmm. I knew what I was supposed to be looking out for. Now, I didn't have solutions to it all right away. And it was a, you know, it was a steep learning curve, but at least I had the vocabulary and the knowledge, which most certainly was something that I leveraged to become better, faster than I would have been had I just come in completely cold. No doubt. No doubt. (laughs) One thing I was wondering, was this all your own money that was on the table here when you were betting and flying all over the world for these tournaments? Yes. Yeah. So you really did have legitimate skin in the game here. Were you ever concerned about that? Was your husband ever concerned about that? No, I mean, one of the first things that Eric taught me was bankroll management. So he always looked at my schedule and looked at what I was and was not allowed to play. Because from the very beginning, before even I knew how seriously I would be taking this, he said, you have to take it seriously from day one. You have to approach this as if this were going to be your profession, as if you were going to be a professional player. And that's how I'm going to teach you. And so I started out playing online. So I live in New York and online poker is illegal here, but it's legal in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So 
every day I would reverse commute. I would go in the morning to New Jersey and fire up my computer and play poker until late at night and then come back home and do it again. At a Starbucks or where'd you go? (laughs) Yep. Starbucks, different cafes, different Mm. restaurants. Yep. Anywhere that would have me. Developed quite the roster of spots in New Jersey that would not mind me sitting there for hours at a time. And the idea was to get experience and to get hands in and to kind of learn as quickly as I possibly could. But it was also to start building a bankroll because online they have, you know, $5 tournaments, $10 tournaments, tournaments that don't cost a lot of money at all. Live, you don't have a $10 tournament, just does not exist. And so I was not allowed to go to Vegas. By not allowed, I mean, Eric had very strict, (laughs) kind of a very strict learning curve for me until I started making money online. So by the time I went to Las Vegas, I had made about $2,000 online playing poker. And that was the start of my bankroll. When I got to Vegas, I was only allowed to play the smallest buy-in tournaments, so the $35 daily tournaments. I couldn't play the $100 tournaments because I was not properly bankrolled for them. And so Eric had me play those. And until I started winning them, the first time I won one, I won almost $1,000. Then once I consistently started being able to win and to make money doing that, then I was allowed to move up to the $100 tournaments. And then when I started winning those and those, every time I won that was, you know, or did well, it was four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000. Then I was able to start moving up to the next tier, the 500, the thousand dollar tournaments. But even when I was playing those, I sold pieces of my action, which is a way of mitigating risk. So it's something that poker players do all the time where you play for 50% of yourself. So I pay half the buy-in and if I win, I get half the money. And then other people say someone has 10%, someone has 15%, someone has 20%. I sell pieces and they give me that buy-in and then they will get however much I win that whatever percentage that is and that's a way that even the top pros who play at the highest levels that's a way of mitigating risk because you know that even if you're good it's a high variance game and you're not going to win every single time so I was only allowed to play what I could afford and I had other ways of really kind of playing around with my risk management strategies. So at any given point in time, after I started basically playing full time, I was only ever playing for 50% of myself. So you never got ahead of your skis because of the bankrolling. That's actually some very good coaching that he gave you. Were you ever buying into other players? Did you ever use your bankroll to buy into a hedge into other players' entry fees? Or were you just allowing people to buy into yours? I would sometimes swap, which means that you swap a percentage with another player. Mm -hmm. So if you're both playing the same event, you'll swap, say, you know, 5%. So if I cash, they get 5%. If they cash, I get 5%. If neither one of us cashes, you know, we don't get anything. So that's one way I did it. But I never actually bought pieces of other players until much later on. Are you playing against the person at the same time? You are, theoretically, but these tournaments are thousands of people big. So unless you both get to a final table, chances are you're never going to play. Okay. So you're actually rooting on somebody else, which kind of makes it fun too. I like that. Of course. Yeah. So it's great. It is a lot of fun. Then eventually I actually started buying pieces of players, but that was several years later. And that wasn't even risk mitigation so much as a fun sweat 
of my friends. Are you still doing this? Is poker part of your life? I was. It was until COVID. And then COVID killed the live poker for over a year. And it's only now starting to come back. But yes, I plan to start playing live again. And to make money for fun for another book? Like what's the motivation? To make money. Okay, good for you. Wow. So you got a real real upside from this. Your book talks about this journey from being this novice true novice, didn't even know the rules of the game, to winning your first professional poker tournament. I think you won $85,000. And one of your earliest discoveries about poker was that you can win with the worst hand and you can lose with the best hand, which I think is truly provocative about life. And it's not the cards that determines who wins. It's really who's the better player. So tell us about this and how it shaped your approach to playing poker and, and how it influenced you to approach life. Well, I think it's just such a powerful illustration of the fact that poker is not gambling, that it's a game of skill. And over and over, people say, oh, well, it's just gambling. You know, it's like blackjack. And that's why I actually say what the exact thing that you just quoted, that no, it's nothing like that because poker is literally the only game in a casino where you can win with the worst hand and lose with the best hand, where you don't actually have to have the best of it to win. Everything else, you just have to get lucky. You have to, sure, there are you know there are strategies, but at the end of the day, you have to get lucky. If you hit your cards, great. If you don't, too bad for you, or roulette, or whatever it is. But in poker, it truly is a game of skill. And actually, when you crunch the data, and people have done this with online poker, looking at hundreds of thousands of hands, you find that hands hardly ever go to showdown and that the best hand wins just a fraction of the time. And that's just, to me, the biggest sign of just how much skill plays into this. The best player never gets to showdown, never shows her cards. It's the player who can outplay everyone else and get everyone else to fold, including fold the winning hand before you even see all of the information. And that's just such a powerful insight into the way that life works and how many times, you know, you probably got outplayed. How many times in negotiations I probably got outplayed because I thought someone was very strong, but they weren't. They just were much better at representing how strong they were and I folded a winning hand. And it just makes you stop and think and say, wow, (laughs) you know. This probably happens a lot more than I want to realize, but it's also a really powerful motivator to just try to be the best version of yourself, the best decision maker you can be so that you can gain the biggest skill edge possible, be it in a game of poker or in any sort of interaction or decision in life. You know, how can I be the one who ends up winning with the worst hand or winning with the best hand because right that's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not folding the best hand, not being bullied into folding the best hand. That was often my problem was I would let other people walk all over me and bully me and you know I would bow down to aggression and that was not good. That was causing me to bleed money in poker and it was certainly hindering me in life even though it took poker to make me aware of that. Did self doubt play into this too? In other words, Were you shutting yourself down, folding, giving away a potentially winning hand because you thought, you know, your self-talk was, oh, this probably isn't good enough to win here. These are really good players. So I'm just going to like 
opt out. Oh, for sure. The reason I'm asking is so I think we talk ourselves out of like if we think we have a bad hand, we go, well, I'm going to lose because I got a bad hand as opposed to the mindset that says, how do I play this bad hand in a way that might allow me to still win? That's the insight that you gave me here. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. And yes, absolutely. I doubted myself. I had huge imposter syndrome and thought, you know, I don't even have any business being here. So yeah, I talked myself out of a lot of things. And it took a long time to try to talk myself into these things rather than talking myself out of them. Because the other insight is that you can't just theoretically know how to play a hand and how to make this into a winning hand, even when it's not, you have to feel it. You have to believe it. Mm. You have to, you know, your mind and your body and your heart has to be in it. Otherwise, people can see it's not sincere and it's not going to work. You can't just bluff because you know you're supposed to bluff. That's going to get you in trouble. It's not going to work. You can only outplay other people if you believe it, if you are actually in there and committed to it. So authenticity plays a role in poker is what you're just saying. That's really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. That's very cool. Something else you talked about is tilting. And when we allow our emotions to overwhelm our decision making, and there's a lot of emotion, I imagine, in playing the kinds of games that you're playing, and particularly when more and more money was on the line. And so tilting, you believe, makes us revert to our worst selves. And so how did you learn to master your own emotions while playing poker, especially, like I said, when you're playing for real dough? It was a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of work away from the felt. I actually ended up mm. working with a mental game coach who helped me think through a lot of these things and a lot of the things, you know, what are my triggers? What makes me tilt? How do I tilt? You know, how does it influence my decisions? And to work through this when I wasn't playing so that I would have not only a way of recognizing it when it was happening and anticipating it when some of the triggers that we had identified came up, but I'd also have an action plan that I practiced ahead of time about what to do to get out of that emotional state and to actually kind of get back to my rational, clear-headed way of thinking. Because if you don't do that, if you don't put in the hard work away from the tables, it's not going to work because it's really impossible to do that work and try to figure out what to do and try to get out of the tilt state when you're already tilting, when you're already in the situation, when you're already in the hot emotional state because you're not thinking clearly. And the worst judge of of you is you when you're not thinking clearly. Someone who's an outside observer is much more able to say, hey, you're tilting. Here's what you need to do. And you're probably not going to listen in that moment because you're like, what are you talking about? I'm not tilting. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just fine. Right Go now. away. <laughs> are there ways I'm tilting. To, you're tilting. <laughs> I'm not tilting. You're tilting. Are there ways for, you said you had a coach and which makes me think, okay, there's some sophistication there, a level of knowledge. He probably has a diagnostic tool. Are there ways that you know of that we can all identify some of our major tilts without getting, yeah. you know, an expensive coach to point them out to us. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of it was just me, was was him telling me, okay, you actually need to write down, like he made me create an Excel spreadsheet where I would think back 
through kind of the last game I played and try to figure out, okay, when did I, you know, what happened? When did I make bad decisions? Okay, what happened before then? What are some of my triggers? And it's just taking the time to sit down with yourself and to actually give yourself the mental space to think back and try to identify, okay, what are the things that bother me? What frustrates me? What makes me angry? What makes me happy? You know, just what are my emotional triggers? What types of situations annoy me? What types of people annoy me? All of these things. And then you write them all down. And then you think, okay, well, how does it manifest itself? What actually happens? I'll give you an example from poker where you can see how tilt affects different people very differently. So say you lose a really big hand. You lose a lot of money. Well, People can react to that in a lot of different ways. There's the player who will become very protective of their chips and much more risk averse than actually would be optimal, who stops making optimal decisions because they think, oh, God, I lost all of this money. I have to protect the little I have. I have to be extra cautious. That's not rational. That's tilt. That's actually your emotions, your fear getting in your way. The exact same situation, you lose a lot of chips, but there's a different person sitting there. That person becomes insanely aggressive and says, you know what, I'm going to win that all back. I did not deserve to lose them and I'll show you and starts taking crazy risks, much bigger risks than they should be taking rather than objectively evaluating the situation and making a decision based on rational thought. They are becoming way too risk seeking. They're tilting, but their tilt manifests itself in a completely different way. Which one are you? How do you respond? Who the hell knows until you actually sit down and think through it and think honestly with yourself what your reaction is so that you will then know, okay, how do I counteract it? How do I infuse logic back into that situation? Because the process is going to be different for every single person. And most people just never take the time to think about their own minds. And then you have to actually learn to be present and mindful and pay attention, which means not just paying attention to other players, it means paying attention to yourself. So I actually meditate every single day and I urge everyone, if you want to be a good poker player, if you just want to be kind of more effective at whatever it is you do in life, to have a daily meditation practice because it helps you focus your attention. It helps you be aware of what your body is saying, what your mind is saying, what your emotions are saying. That self-awareness is going to enable you to identify the emotion, the tilt, before it influences your decision. Because you're never going to get rid of that emotion. Your goal isn't to get rid of it. Your goal is to identify it, to say, hey, emotion, you know, hey, anger, hey, frustration, hey, elation, hey, whatever you are, I see you. I know that you're not relevant to my decision. So now I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you to the side and I'm not going to use you in making my decision. I know that normally this makes me be more reckless or this makes me too cautious or this makes me be angry at this and you know take a very personal decision where I shouldn't. And so I'm going to not do that. Instead, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to think about the information I have and I'm going to make a decision that does not use this emotion at all. I asked that question in hopes that you would go down this road, but you've really just described a form of mastery that I think is not only so incredibly helpful in life so that you're not wobbling when you don't need to wobble, but in terms of leading people. If you haven't done this kind of work, 
it's going to rear its ugly head. You're going to get into a situation where you're going to make bad decisions because some emotional response to a situation that may have occurred when you were 10 or yesterday with your spouse, who knows. But if you know what it is that makes you wobble and you're, you're really, truly mindful about it, you can overcome those things in real time. And so you just gave a really brilliant answer and I'm going to leave it there because there's something else that I really want to talk to you about, which you alluded to at the very beginning. I was like, I want to get to this, but I have other things I want to talk about. It has to do with luck. So I have a big Twitter following and every once in a while, just send out a question like, what do you feel about this? And one of them was, how much has luck played in the success of your life? And so I'll just play this game with you first before I ask my question. What do you think the answer was? What do you think the consistent answer? I'll give you a hint. There was one answer that just kept coming up. Um, I don't know. It depends on who your followers are. But from what I've seen, I would say that a lot of people say, you know, the word luck is not in my vocabulary. That's it. I create my own luck. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Like, it's like, why are you asking me this question on Twitter? Because I make shit happen in my life. Um, any success I have is because of me. And yet, you know, when you go back and you think about Eric Seidel, just as an example, and you not only got this world-class player to agree to mentor you, but then he turned out to be somebody who, like, if you could pick one person in the world to be your coach, it would be him. That's luck, right? Forget the games that you won, right? And so I I think what I really want to know is what's your consensus? Like, what did you learn that you'll never forget in this entire broad experience about luck in life? Um, It's crucial. I mean, it's central, especially in the immediate term. So we've talked a little bit about the fact that poker is a game of skill, but it's a game of skill over the long term. In any given game, in any given tournament, anyone can get lucky. I think that's what draws a lot of amateurs to the game, to be Mm -hmm. perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. They see that and they say, oh, I can do it too. And you know what? Maybe you can. So if I were to sit down with Eric Seidel and we were to play a game, I might beat him. I didn't just suddenly become better than he is. I just got luckier in this particular draw of the cards. If we play 10 games, we're probably going to start evening out. If we play 100, if we play 1,000, I'm broke. He's taking all of my money because over the long term, the skill edge is huge. But in the immediate term, luck is huge. And I think that that's very true in life. Over the long term, you know, skill is incredibly important, but you need to get to the long term and you have no idea what the long term looks like because in the immediate term, luck is insanely big and it's even more important in life than it is in poker because poker is just a game at the end of the day. You know, it's a challenging game, but it's a game. There's only so much that can happen. You lose your money, you lose your buy-in. And in life, sometimes the luck is so bad that you never get a shot at a second chance at the long term. It just doesn't happen. And that's unfortunate, but it's the reality. And so what I always say is that the most important thing in life is to be lucky because skill is necessary, but it ain't ever sufficient. So why why do you think we diminish the role of luck in our life? Why are we so convinced? Is this the illusion of control again? Yeah, I think it's the illusion of control and also the desire to kind of to have a 
just theory of the world, cause and effect. I work I hard, I'm that. rewarded. I love that. You know, I think yeah. I think it has a lot to do with that. Well, I mean, that's a really good point because like, you know, if you're working in a company and, you know, there's two people going for a promotion and the other person gets it, you think, well, you know, this was wrong. But there's some luck involved in why that person mm-hmm. got chosen that you're probably not aware of. Yeah. I remember being in a similar experience and I found out like somebody got a promotion that, I was clearly more prepared for and and had earned. And I said to my boss, I said, well, just tell me what was the criteria? He goes, he was here first. And I was like, that's your criteria? Yeah, he was here when I needed somebody and he was a big supporter. And so I just felt that I needed to reward him. You know, he just thought he was competent and wasn't looking at anything that was really metric oriented. It was strictly that he supported me at a time where you weren't even around. And I just thought, wow, that's like, Lucky, lucky him, right? That's really what it came down to. And it made it, it was irrational to me, but I came to accept it easier once I understood that he was working with this sort of arbitrary approach to it, you know? Mm-hmm. One other question I had was, so you're not making any money and you start making a little money and then you had a big leap and you made a lot mm-hmm. of money. So what was the launch pad? Like, did you have the sudden inspiration where you're like, oh, I figured this out now and I can play at this higher level? Or what was it? It was incremental and then things just kind of came together. And I wish I could point to one thing at a time, but I don't think, I think I'd be lying if I tried to tell you a clean narrative. I mean, I was working my ass off. I mean, when I was playing at full time when I was working on The Biggest Bluff, I was studying or playing every single day, no weekends, seven days a week, nine, 10 hours a day, 11, 12, 13 hour days when I was playing. I was putting in the time and really working hard. And, you know, it was for a long time, it felt like I was doing it for nothing, but then something clicked and things just came together. And I think they'd had enough time to marinate in my brain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it all it all actually just made sense. Wow, fantastic. So I think if I'm not mistaken, you referenced George Plimpton. In a footnote. Which is a rather <laughs> ancient reference, you know, so I'm not even so I don't even know how you knew of George Plimpton. But for our audience, this is a guy who was actually a really gifted writer, very talented guy. But at some point in his career, he just started to decide that I'm going to try a bunch of different experiences in life. One was he became the quarterback for the Detroit Lions and wrote a book called Paper Lion. And so he chronicled his experiences of trying to be an abject amateur playing with professional people at a particular thing. In this case, it was football. And so I, I laugh when you mentioned him because I thought, well, you could cobble this together now. And are you going to do that? No, no, absolutely not. I have zero, zero interest in any more immersive journalism projects. So what's next for you, Maria? I have no idea. Just like I could not have predicted the biggest bluff. I'll know it when I see it. That's a really cool answer. I'll let the universe bring it to you. So, Maria, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life. I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these require a quick and instinctive and brief answer. In other words, answer them in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. All right, cool. I shouldn't have asked you that question. The one trait you consider essential to your success? Humility. A person alive or dead with whom you'd most like to have dinner? Joseph Brodsky. Yes or no? 
Have you ever read an issue of The New Yorker cover to cover? Yes. One thing you hope to see change in the world? Less certainty, more inquiry. (laughs) A game other than poker you discovered you play much better now that you've become a poker master. None. I don't like games. Quality you admire in other people? Humility and curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) One way growing up in Russia continues to influence your life today? I think just my fascination with language and with the way that what we can and can't say shapes the way we think and the way that others perceive us. Hmm. A prediction about the future you think there are high odds of coming true? That will self-destruct. <laughs> Sorry. Um, not where I was going, but <laughs> skill improvement you're working on right now. Optimism, hope. <laughs> I'm kidding. Working at my storytelling abilities. I know that sounds that sounds funny, but I, I always love flexing different storytelling muscles. So right now I'm working on different formats of storytelling that I haven't done before. So audio originals, um, more screenwriting. So trying to become a better storyteller however I can. Oh, that's fantastic. Your synonym for the word heart. So what's your personal superpower? My personal superpower is being underestimated. You prove that. And finally, one book you wish everyone in the world would read. I wish everyone in the world would read so many books. I don't have a heartbeat answer for this because I just want to I just want to throw everything at them. But I will say because this will take you a long time and uh, force you to really think W.H. Auden's collected poems. That's all of his poems. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I was an English literature major, and I'm a big fan of Alden. So, okay, you cheered me (laughs) up after that (laughs) dire remark that you made about life expectancy of our planet and civilization. So thank you for cheering me up. And uh, I have one one more question for you that I want to ask before we go. But thank you. These were great answers. Thank you. Final question. How much would you like to wager? No, I'm... (laughs) (laughs) What are the most profound ways this whole two-year experience changed your life? And let me add in, from a leadership perspective, what were the most meaningful insights you took from it? I'm just going to answer this with one meaningful insight because I think that it's the single most meaningful insight that I got, so I don't want to dilute it. And it was something that Eric Seidel said pretty early on in my journey, but that has really over time just cemented its way into my mind and you know, tattooed itself on my brain. And that's less certainty, more inquiry. I feel like the world would be a much better place and everyone would be a much better human being if we just had that attitude with everything in life. Be a little less certain about your beliefs, about the fact that you're always right and be curious be willing to inquire, be willing to ask questions, and be willing to admit that you don't know everything and that you might be wrong. If everyone just approached the world with the spirit of less certainty, more inquiry, I mean, I think it would be a much happier place. What a fantastic way to punctuate this entire conversation. Thank you. That's really, really great. I know that's in your book, and it's one of my major takeaways from it, but the fact that you would pin it down that way is absolutely brilliant. And, you know, just a reminder here, it's a leadership podcast, and that is one absolutely essential piece of wisdom for anybody who's in management leadership roles. Less certainty, more inquiry. Thank you, Maria Konnikova, for joining us. It's been a delight. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to announce that this is the final episode of the season. And because of you, we now have a listening audience in 154 countries. We plan to be back with new and inspiring guests later this summer. In the meantime, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so whenever our next edition is ready, it will be sent to you directly. I'm also thrilled to say that I'm going to be spending a lot of time over the rest of the spring and summer writing. My publisher has asked me to produce a second edition of my book, Lead from the Heart, and upon completion has plans to translate it into several languages and publish it around the world. During this past year of COVID, it's largely been my sound engineer, Eric Oz, and me producing each episode. So as we finish our season, I want to extend an extra special thank you to him for ensuring our show retained its high listening quality during a rather uncommon year. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and looking forward to rejoining you later this year. 